And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm Dr. Dave Devil. I'm a professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Also the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. And I'm joined by, you just heard the voice, my colleague Liz Kelly, managing editor of Logos, and also a writer and speaker in her own right. Today we are joined by Sister Albert Marie Sermansky, OP, a Dominican of the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. She's a professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, the other St. Thomas, the one where it's warm, <laughs> warm all the time. Uh, I, we, we talk about how we're just alike. In Texas, you stay inside for half of the year. And in, uh, in Minnesota, Minnesota, same thing. It's just, <laughs> just they stay inside for, for the summer and we stay inside for the winter. Welcome, sister. Thank you. God, so glad to be here. Let's start off by asking you a little bit about yourself, sister. You've, you've appeared in the pages of Logos several times, and you've uh, published elsewhere. Uh, you're, you're a professor there. But how did you come to the, uh, to the order of the Dominicans, and uh, what, what's your educational background? Yeah, so I grew up in southern Ontario, and my, my vocation began fairly simply. My family practiced the Catholic faith. We prayed the rosary. We attended Mass. And I just remember as a teenager, through that experience, just having more and more of a sense of God's reality, God's presence. Um, after Mass, there were that reality of Christ received in communion. And just out of that, the desire started to grow. You know, I need to look into religious life. I need to look into giving my life to the Lord in a, in a way particularly connected to the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. So I didn't see any communities in Ontario as a teenager that seemed to to fit. So I thought, well, I'll go to a Catholic university in the United States because they've got a lot more Catholic universities and they've got a lot more religious communities, and hopefully I'll be able to figure that out. So Ave Maria University was in Michigan at that time. Oh, sure. So And Michigan was close to Ontario, so it was just seemed to fit. And then while I was studying there, I came to meet our Dominican Sisters of Mary, whose mother house is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So it was meeting them and then also studying theology as a college mm -hmm. student. And I mean, I would find myself with my theology books in the chapel, sort of drawing my prayer from what I was studying and mm -hmm. came to realize I wanted to be in a community that continued to focus on studying and also on teaching. So mm -hmm. that's how I ended up with the Dominicans. Sister, a lot of the uh, articles that you have published really take a deeper look at women in the church, their role, uh, how uh, important they are. How did you get attracted or how did you land on that kind of subject matter? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. It's partly just from being a woman in the church myself that there's that interest in what, what do other people say? When I when I studied, so I did my PhD, 
my community sent me to do my PhD and my master's degree at Aveimer University down in Florida. Mm-hmm. And my area of study of dissertation is actually medieval sacramental theology. So I publish some stuff on that topic, but not usually with logos. Mm-hmm. But the, the question of women is more just, re- I guess, just personal interest. And mm-hmm. also because my training is more Thomistic and systematic, there's some really interesting theological questions arise when I read some of these women theologians, because historically, the women don't have the formal theological training. Mm. So they're not using the formal Thomistic vocabulary, but they have these real revelations or experience of God or deep insights into the Christian life. So it raises really interesting questions of how does this relate to the more formal ecclesial or academic terminology? What what are the connections and how do they fit together? That's that's a great lead up to the article that we're going to discuss today, don't you think, Dave? I think so. It's uh, from our winter 2019 issues. Sister Albert Marie, you, you wrote, on St. Therese of Lisieux, Feminism and Eternity, and then the subtitle was In Conversation with Sister Elizabeth Johnson, CSJ, a prominent contemporary feminist. And in that article, you actually pointed out a number of areas in which contemporary feminists and also somebody who is as rock solid as Therese of Lisieux actually, actually agree that there are problems and that there are things that, uh, that women can contribute. Can you can you maybe lay out a few of those of those commonalities, and then we can talk about where they diverge? Yeah, yeah. Let me just really briefly tell you the story of that article, because it's one that just, the story matters a little bit. So I teach a course at St. Mary's Seminary down here in Houston, Texas, for um, second-year master's students, the seminarians who are preparing for the priesthood. And in the spirituality course, we partly run it like a great books course sort of introduce the future priests into some of the key texts of the Catholic theological heritage. So they were reading Therese. So I was reading Therese. I always try and read everything again with my students so my insights are fresh. And I watched through the seminary library, and one of the librarians or someone had pulled out a book on Aluda Johnson. It was there. So I just, you know, I haven't read her for a while. Mm-hmm. I don't always agree with her, but mm-hmm. she's a she has interesting thoughts. Like she she... I like the question she's willing to take up. So I was just reading the two at the same time, and I expected them to be very, very different. And there were places where I was like, she's describing Trez. Johnson's describing Trez. This fits, this fits, this is the same. Ooh, mm. something so, so different. So it was really um, provocative and really, really interesting. I went to Fordham University, and Sister Elizabeth Johnson was there. And I, I didn't take any courses with her, but I knew her from from events. And I mean, one of the things that struck me about her is that she was trained in a very traditional manner. Mm-hmm. You know, she knew her sources. I thought that many times uh, perhaps she didn't go in the right direction with them, but she, you know, she understood what the issues are. And it seems to me that uh, at least an older, an older school of, of feminist thinkers, as well as, you know, other theologians who perhaps have, have, have gone in different directions, at least had that connection with the tradition. And that, that kind of helps, doesn't it? Yes, she's willing to look at the tradition and speak to it. And she doesn't always agree, and I don't always agree with her interpretation of it, but she's willing to have that conversation and willing to really put her mind into that conversation. You've got to give her respect for that, yeah. even when disagreeing. Yeah, because some, some will just say, 
oh, that's a patriarchal tradition, the end, and they don't even go into it. Right. It's, it's, you, you, you can't have as meaning, you know, it's a different conversation. And usually someone from that viewpoint may not even want to have a conversation. Yeah. So. One of the courses that I taught in undergrad was woman and man, and I would often use some of her articles and writings as a place to uh, step off into conversation because she did, did ask some really interesting and the right questions, I think. What, what were some of the commonalities that you were finding that made you go, ooh, ooh? <laughs> yeah. So I was reading her book, um, I believe She Who Is, on, the, mm. on, on God. But there's a place where she goes through and sort of lists what tend to be the concerns of female theological writers. And she sort of listed through women tend to emphasize these points. And the point she described, I mean, I don't know if every woman theologian I know fits into that, but it fit Therese really, really well. So she said women tend to, in their writings, have an attentiveness to the embodied reality of daily life, not necessarily starting with abstract ideas, but starting with with the concrete. Um, Women need to push back against oppressive rules and structures. Now, that one, you there's a huge argument on what's oppressive and what isn't, right? But and I mean, how to we're, push we're all back. striving, for, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so how you do that, she and Therese wouldn't agree with. But I mean, we we all Christianity involves pushing back against, you know, the, the unfreedom, slavery that comes from sin and of everything connected to it, and then lived ex- giving a real value to lived experience, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Therese doesn't give us a theological treaty. She gives us the story of a soul. She's taking us to the heights through her experience. And then this one is interesting, accepting oneself despite mm. not attaining cultural standards of perfection. And that, that's a real major theme in Trez's work when she realizes, I'm not going to be perfect in every way, sort of pushing back against the Jansenism of her time, but just... I'm going to fall asleep during meditation. I can't help it with the diet and the schedule. I just do that. God loves me even though I'm not living up to a unrealistic perfectionism. Mm, that's a very important point, I think, for just women in general uh, yes. who tend to sort of strangle themselves with perfectionism. Even outside the church, yes. you see that that's, a, that's a, an important topic. Yes, and in our visual culture and how people portrayed and are looked, there's there's whole more dimensions of this that we need to push back against that Therese didn't have to mm. have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sounds a lot and, like Mulieris Dignitatum too, though, doesn't it? I mean, uh, Therese and and Sister Elizabeth Johnson and John Paul. I don't know if you know Sister Johnson would necessarily think she she fits with those people, but but there's a lot of commonality there. There are some, actually, in that way, and some more recent feminist theologians or feminine feminist theologians won't necessarily like describing certain female characteristics, right? We sort of have a tendency to every individual is an individual, so you can't right. group us and group any group in any way. But, but Johnson doesn't, she's willing to notice tendencies that tend to belong to women and to men. And that is something that John Paul II does in Mulieris Dignitatum and in Theology of the Body. So I th- there are there is definitely some, some similarities, yeah. Um, in 2008, I had the opportunity to go to the Congress on Mulieris Dignitatum in honor of its 20th anniversary in Rome. 
and they uh, gathered scholars from around the world to comment on it. And, and uh, one conversation that broke out was about the word feminist and feminism, whether or not we could even reclaim it, use it, if we had to discard it, come up with something new. You know, people were saying we should go with feminine genius and masculine genius. Uh, can you speak to a little bit of the difficulty around using the word itself, the idea itself of feminism within the work that you do? Yeah, that's a question I haven't fully decided for myself mm. in the sense of how usable the term is. Personally, I won't usually call myself a feminist or the perspective that I look at theology feminist because often I find there's a lot of anger associated with that term and it often is associated with sort of a rejection of the church's magisterial teaching on something, but, but not, not always. So I guess I find if I would use it, I would always have to explain it. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily like yeah. to always have to append that footnote. So I'll usually use woman or feminine. I don't necessarily think it's problematic for everyone who uses that and still wants to teach within the Catholic tradition, but I'm not usually willing to give the paragraph of explanation. Right. And the term just, just has those emotional connotations and ideological connotations. But I don't know how, what's, what's your thought on that? Well, this seems to be part of the, the broader problem of our times is that we use terms that are somewhat general in which everybody can agree on the first premise. Do you believe in women's rights? Well, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Just the question is, what are those rights? You know, as you were saying right. earlier, well, of course I don't want oppression, but we have to define what's oppression and what are, you know, what are just rules or what are, what are uh, strictures that uh, you know, help us live as a society. And so that's it. And my wife tends to say feminism tends to mean either everybody's a feminist or you know, it doesn't mean anything. And I, it just seems somewhat problematic, just as many other terms do. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's here's the here's the next part then is that you have all of these commonalities and then you have the divergence and and the divergence is actually a fairly serious one because Sister Johnson like many feminists tends to reject the classical Catholic theological tradition and tends to think that many of these ideas about the nature of God uh, and how God acts actually form part of an oppressive atmosphere for women. Um, and particularly that third term in your title, eternity, the eternal mm-hmm. God. I, explain why it is that eternity would be something that, that a contemporary feminist might think is oppressive. Yeah, and there, there's a few reasons there. I mean, Elizabeth Johnson, first of all, for her, that's in strong tension with that first quality of feminine theologians, sort of concern for the embodied and the personal and the real and the experienced. So sort of the idea of eternity in her thought seems to suggest this isn't going to be congenial to, to feminine writers or not appeal to them that much in the first place, um, which is also what shocked me about Therese because she likes to talk about eternity a lot. Mm-hmm. But of course, the, the deeper problem is that Johnson thinks that talking about God as eternal and therefore not changing and not suffering alienates God from us, distances God from women's experience, and she tends to think that the term eternal 
is more of a metaphorical term, although she'll sometimes use the word analogy, but that it comes from looking at a king or a monarch who's who's above you and is sort of unchanging while the peasants or the, the subjects are sort of suffering and toiling away, so that there's sort of a pictorial historical connection to a ruling man that that term always brings up. So the ideological God doesn't change and suffer is a real problem for her because of the alienation from experience and then also a sort of emotional, historical, pictorial connection to the image of a king, which she finds problematic and alienating too. Yeah, she's part of a stream of of modern and contemporary thinkers. Uh, You know, we can think of Protestant ones like Jürgen Moltmann and even Catholic ones in a certain sense, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who seem to think that uh, a suffering God would be uh, more approachable or something like that. Um, but Therese didn't think so. Uh, and that's, that's perhaps what's surprising uh, to some people and maybe, maybe not surprising to others. Why didn't Therese think that eternity was uh, basically a sort of a, a mansplaining version of, of God? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And in in my article, I trace her sort of thoughts about eternity through different moments in her life. But early on, there's a um, a beautiful incident she accounts where she goes she goes fishing with her father, and she brings these jam sandwiches. <laughs> and she says she she looks out over at the sky and the vastness of the sky, and just has a the beauty and peace of it begin, makes her begin to think about God's eternity and, you know, life forever, and that, that gives her great joy. So it, it connects to her experience. There's also, she also, the jam soaks into her sandwich, and the sandwich is kind of yucky, and it makes her sad. She's a, <laughs> a very sensitive person. I always kind of laugh when I get to that point, like, oh, the sad jam sandwich. <laughs> but, but then, so, so for her, eternity isn't something alienated or distanced from her experience. She sort of sees intimations of it in the vastness of the natural world. And then as she goes older, comes to have a, you know, deeper sort of more abstract theological grasp of that. But especially when she's suffering, right? Tres really suffers at the end of her life with tuberculosis. And she, she finds the idea that God is eternal and that there's God's eternity and God's joy and God's light to step into. She feels herself drawn towards that sort of on the, on the level of, of experience, but also there's moments where just the faith in that gives her strength and peace. The sense that I think for Tres, a suffering, a God who suffered and wasn't, didn't have that, that, that sense of eternal bliss, her hope would be cut off. She wants there to be something above this suffering life, which is untouched and beautiful and blissful because she has such great desires of her heart that only that will fulfill these sort of infinite desires she feels during her life. That's, that's a great way of putting it. I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I would question as a man, we're always supposed to preface everything with our identity, but as a man, I sometimes wonder, um, you know, whether that picture of God that sort of negative picture of God uh, is is really something that would comfort men, for one, uh, but also whether just you know the, the the depiction of an eternal God, an impassable God, uh, really does make people feel bad, or whether it whether it appeals to most women and to most men uh, as one that gives them hope 
that God is the one who's beyond all changes, so the one who, who is the stable force, the rock, the beyond. Um, I, I, I tend to be more on Teresa's side on this. Yeah, and that we're created to enter into that, to share in that life uh, of, of eternity. Um, I think that's a part that seems to be quite missing for me when I read Johnson as well. Yes, that it's, it's, we're not there yet, but the desire is there, and it's mm. not something alienating, alien from us. We're called to share in it. I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies Movement in Higher Education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. How do you teach the nature of God to, to undergraduates, for instance, and, and get across a positive vision of eternity? Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on your class. <laughs> I, I Sometimes I teach the sophomores an introduction to Catholic theology class, so that's you don't have that much time on each topic. But we'll read just a little bit of Boethius, where, but there's a point where he compares time and eternity mm-hmm. and sort of sees time as a limitation. So we, we tend to picture time as it's something positive and good for us, but sort of he talks about, you know, your life is failing and flowing and passing away, and you've, you've lost your past moments, and you haven't received the future yet. And the students will sort of, you'll see them sort of nodding and getting that, that sense. And then God's eternity as the positive, having all at once, not losing, not lacking. They usually are able to to begin to grasp the idea of eternity as something full and positive yeah. when, when we spend a lot of time sort of going through that, that description. So maybe thinking about eternity not as being, you know, we always, sometimes people talk about eternity as being outside time, as if it's just sort of out there. But really, you're talking about more of a conception of, of eternity as, as the fullness of time, when, when God will be all in all, as St. Paul says. Yes, yes. To, to get that idea that we lose Time is a, a limitation and a loss, and then it, whenever anything seems limited or lost, we always have that instinct to look, well, what, what isn't lost? What is fuller? Yeah, the idea that eternity touches and upholds every moment of time, so it's a, a fuller way of being. And so, some get it, some love it, some tell me they're going to go to the chapel and meditate on that, and there's always a couple <laughs> looking cross-eyed at the end of class, but you know, things like, right? Yeah, I've, I've been told my classes sometimes seem like eternity. I'm not sure that's <laughs> it's probably not the same thing. Well, see, see, I'll use that example. Time, it, sometimes it drags on, like, like right now. <laughs> like they're nodding and laughing. Well, what, what, what reaction have you gotten from this article? Have you, have you uh, had any feminist theologians read it and, and respond to you? I haven't had any sort of formal response from feminist theologians. I was invited last spring up to Columbia University. They have um, multiple faculty seminars, small groups that discuss 
various issues and topics. And I was invited to a Catholicism and Culture seminar there where we were right we talked about the paper. And there were a few in attendance who definitely were in favor of sort of more feminist perspective or the female priesthood. But I tended to most people got were surprised that there's this rejection of eternity and we're at least willing to to listen we're willing to to listen yeah so some of some of these ideas that are out there in feminist discourse aren't even known to to many of the feminists themselves then huh i think that's true actually i think that's true that i mean because one of the, the weaknesses in certain ideological feminism is you, instead of focusing on revelation, you focus on experience, right? That's yeah. partly where, in my understanding, Johnson goes off. But then when you're focusing on experience, sometimes you don't even ask the theoretical questions. You just want to improve things for women nowadays, which can be good or can be not, depending on what you understand as improve. Yeah. Well, you brought up, I mean, you brought up one of the topics of kind of discussion over the last 40 or 50 years, which is the question of whether women women can be can be priests in the New Testament sense. Um, Therese of Lisieux is sometimes held out by feminist theologians as somebody who's a kind of uh, proto uh, proponent of this because she has that famous line in the autobiography of the soul where uh, she talks about wanting to do everything. She wants to be a priest and a martyr and a soldier and and all of these things. And people say, and of course, and she wants to be a priest. How how did you deal with that uh, in your article, and how do how do you approach Therese with regard to the priesthood? Yeah, Therese is interesting on that topic, partly because she's very honest about what she thinks and feels. So there is that moment where she's, I want to be a priest, but then you know she continues on. I also want to be not a priest. I want to refuse to be a priest, and I want to be a martyr. I want to be a Swiss guard. People don't usually <laughs> quote that one, but that's actually in her blog as well, right? Um, but there are other places. She writes a play in the convent at one time and has a female saint bring communion. And she criticizes some priest. You know, she says, if I was a priest, I would preach more realistically about the Blessed Virgin Mary. So she's she's willing to say what she thinks. But I think that's a place where we actually see Therese as a really, really good theologian. Because what if you read carefully the place where she expresses that desire to be a priest, She's not satisfied. She's like, I'm trying to find what my vocation is. She like lists everything she thinks and feels, but then she continues on. So she picks up the scriptures. She reads St. Paul. So she holds revelation up against her experience and lets her experience be clarified and purified by revelation. And that's where she she finds that um, the greatest of all these is love. And she realizes what what she really wants, what God's really, what's from God in that desire of her heart is a desire to, through her prayer and life and love, support and give life in a really feminine way to all these different vocations within the church. So she's doesn't, she realizes I don't really need, want to be a priest or a Swiss guard or whatever. I want to, <laughs> through my sacrificial life and love of God, give life to all of these activities going on in the church. So it's really a beautiful example and sort of theological method in dealing with one's own heart, yeah. reading that place and how Therese continues on and works through her thoughts and desires there. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's actually a really well done use of personal experience, but mm. tra- and translated through the language of the church and the understanding of this God. 
Where, where can we read more about Therese of Lisieux, and what are some good sources on, on women's experience and theology? What do you, what do you think would, you would recommend to people? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I would always suggest first is just read some of the women theologians in the tradition of the Church and just see what they think. So, I mean, read Catherine of Siena's dialogue. A translation by Susan Nofke is really good. Read Mother Teresa. Read Teresa of Avila. And just so, so see for yourself what women during these time periods, you know, have, have said and thought and expressed. And then I was going to recommend John Paul II on the dignity and vocation of women. I don't know someone who gives a comprehensive analysis of feminist thought in a an excellent way, but that might just be I'm not totally familiar with, with that field. Well, but, they, and they have published the papers from that Congress, and they've translated them into English, and they had another Congress, I think, five years after that, and those papers have also been translated and published in English. And the, the reason I like those two books is because it's an international scholarship that's represented. It's not just an American view or an African view or um, uh, there are scholars from all over the world who help to contribute to that conversation. I think those, those two books can be very helpful starting point uh, for just uh, touching base with where the church is on some of these incredibly important questions and the role of women and what they offer. Yeah. Final question: Would you what would you what would you say that we should learn from these from these great theologians, these women uh, writers and and thinkers and mystics? What would you say the big takeaway is to, uh, to because this is one of the big questions of our time: what it means to be a man and a woman. Uh, and what would you say that maybe women could learn, and what could men learn from from reading these sources? Right. I mean, I. Th- this isn't just a message in these writers, but God is real. Holiness is possible. And maybe to a lesser extent, what, what you read in the Thomas Aquinas or the Catechism or in drier formats really is real and life-giving. And I think that's especially the feminine writers who do write more out of their own experience. This isn't just their experience. They're living the realities of God, which are expressed in the more formal academic writings. And I, I often find in the classroom, reading the more experiential accounts sort of help people to go back to the magisterial theology with a little bit more joy, a little bit more openness, a little bit more mm-hmm. recognition. This, this is real and this is life-giving. So I, I think that's something that, that reading these women helps us to really see and know. Life-giving and joy. I like those two words. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, dogma is man's and woman's best friend. And, uh, <laughs> it seems like these women's writers can give us that, can't they? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I didn't zoom in on a more specific point because they're also, they are very different. What what Catherine focuses on, what Teresa focuses on, what Therese focuses on. Yes. But that, that, yeah, that dogma is, this is describing reality. It's not just a, an academic exercise. Yeah. yeah. Not just for the ivory tower, it's for everyday life. Exactly. That's a great place to end. Uh, thank you, Sister Albert Marie, for joining us and talking about your article, St. Therese of Lisieux, Feminism and Eternity. All right, that was Sister Albert Marie Sermansky. 
Thank you for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things, a partnership between Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. We hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings, to check out the show notes, to become a patron of the show, and to continue the conversation. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusion? We experience this at the Logos Journal daily and while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get this access and to produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content, like online access to the journal articles we discuss, and additional spiritual reflections and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. And if you're a patron to the podcast, you get the ability to comment on the episodes and you can interact directly with us, our guests, and other podcast contributors. Definitely check it out to receive access to some of the best Catholic intellects currently thinking about deep down things. That's www.patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things. <laughs>